Welcome to Trauma Talk. Today our guest is Dr. Haig, and we're going to be discussing OB trauma patients. We also have our guest host, Travis Morin. Hello, my name is Travis, as Aaron said. I'm the EMS coordinator here at Wesley, and we're here with Dr. Haig today, and we'll let her go ahead and introduce herself. Well, good morning or evening or afternoon or whatever you're doing. Maybe you're like me and you're three in the morning trying to keep yourself awake for the next delivery. That's when I listen to most of my podcasts. So hopefully you'll find this entertaining, if nothing else. I um, have my background in EMS from many moons ago when I was a poor college kid just trying to get through, and I worked in the... uh, in the lab at St. Francis. And so that meant I was drawing a lot of blood on um, interesting folks in the ER. And one night the charge nurse said, hey, you're pretty good with needles. Um, Do you want to go become an EMT and work in the ER? And I thought, why not? So that's what I did. And it was a great experience for me. I did a lot of, I did some work in the field, but mostly in the ER. Um, And through that learned a lot of what techs and Docs are facing in rural healthcare and um, and in inner cities, and just kind of how to help you all get these pregnant women ready, knowing what you have available and what you might be facing in the field. So that's what I do. I'm a OBGYN. I deliver here at Wesley Medical Center in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, I deliver an average of one baby a day. It's lots of fun. I do a lot of surgery, and then I'm the OB trauma liaison for Wesley, so I get to look at lots of cases of obstetric trauma and um, evaluate from the time they're picked up in the field to the time they are dismissed from the hospital and just try to help with practice improvement. So that's my role here. Well, Dr. Haig, do you have any cases that come to mind when you think about uh, trauma and pregnancy? Yeah, let's um, let's do a case, and this is just a compilation just for HIPAA um, of a few different patients that I've seen that I've reviewed for the hospital. But let's say that we have a 26-year-old G2P1. That means she's been pregnant two times, had one birth, and is currently pregnant. And you, as the paramedic in town, get called to the scene of a vehicle accident. And she was in the passenger seat of a head-on collision. The estimated speed of her vehicle was 40, and the estimated speed of the other one was 60. And you come on the scene. So the first thing you want to think about with a pregnant lady is, was she wearing her seatbelt? We know, statistically speaking, if she's wearing her seatbelt and she's wearing it properly, her odds and the baby's odds of escaping this accident with minimal morbidity is much greater. So when you come on the scene, you want to know that if she's already out of the vehicle, you want to know was she um, restrained and then you want to do your initial assessment. So uh, the first thing obviously with every patient is you start talking to her. Hey, my name is Jane. I'm the best paramedic you've ever met in your life. I'm going to take such great care of you that you and your baby are going to get delivered to the hospital. You want to instill confidence in this lady. If you can keep her heart rate and her respiratory rate down, you can reduce unnecessary uh, blood pressure issues and, and heart rate issues that can compromise her child. So I would just say, I know this is scary for you. Just acknowledge that. And I I would be scared too, but what I want you to do for you and your child is take some slow, deep breaths, and if you see she's anxious, just remind her that she's in great hands, that you're going to take great care of her, and you want her to do everything she can as a mom to keep herself as calm as she can, and I joke with my patients, the first rule of parenting is show no fear. 
doesn't mean don't be afraid, but don't act afraid. So you don't want to act afraid because you don't want her to be afraid. And it, it is scary. Pregnant women should, should scare you. But our goal is to keep her heart rate and her respiratory rate down. So once you've done that, you ask her, can I take a look at your belly? Now, what you're looking at on pregnant women is you want to look for any signs of trauma um, around the uterus. So let's say this lady's 32 weeks. And a 32-week pregnant lady, if you look at her belly button, her uterus is going to be about six centimeters to eight centimeters above that because when the uterus is at the belly button, they're around 24 to 26 weeks. So you want to touch the top of the uterus, that's called the fundus, and just ask her, does this hurt? Does this bother you? Uterine tenderness is not a great sign and definitely would be a reason to expedite transport. You want to look for signs of bruising on her abdomen. If she was improperly wearing her seatbelt and she has a big bruise right under her belly button, that's not great either. And that would be something you would want to relay to your uh, receiving facility and then you want to look at her so look at her clothes is, does she have bleeding does she look like she just wet her pants because she may have wet her pants sometimes we do wet our pants right but what if her water broke what if the trauma was enough to cause rupture of membranes so you've looked at her you've talked to her and then of course like with all your patients you say I'm, I want to get some blood uh, pressure and heart rate. So on this lady, we would love for her blood pressure to be less than 140 over 90 because that would be normal at this stage of pregnancy. But if she's really hyped up and anxious, it could be higher. If she has ruptured her uterus or caused her placenta to come off, which is called an abruption, it could be higher. So a higher blood pressure is definitely something for you to watch. And then her, her heart rate at 32 weeks may be in the 100 to 110 range normally because heart rate does go up in pregnancy, but you don't want to see it in the 130s and 140s. And again, the best thing you can do for her in this situation is keep her calm. So let's say we've got her in the truck. She has no signs of anything going on. Her blood pressure is perfect at 120 over 80. Her heart rate is 110. And you just keep talking to her. And as you're talking to her, she starts to tell you, I just don't feel right. So one thing you always need to be careful of, again, I said this once, I'll say it throughout the whole time I'm talking to you, don't ever trust pregnant women. So you think everything's going great. She tells you something is not okay. I don't feel right. You should instantly start thinking what, what could have happened. And in a head-on collision like this, one of the biggest things I worry about is a contra-coup injury. So where the placenta starts to separate from the wall of the uterus because there was a shearing force as she had that collision. She has this uh, force of the collision that causes the placenta to shear off. And we see this sometimes in head injuries, right? Where like the brain bounces against the skull. You can kind of get the same sort of injury with the placenta. That can cause what's called a concealed abruption. So where the uterus has separated from the wall or the the placenta has separated from the wall of the uterus and blood is starting to gather there. So she initially on presentation may have a perfect blood pressure and heart rate, but as that blood expands in that space between the placenta and the uterine wall, she may not experience significant pain, but she may start to deteriorate over time. You may see her heart rate climbing. If you start to see vital sign changes in a pregnant woman, you are already in trouble because these young, healthy pregnant women will look fine until they're falling off the cliff, unfortunately. So if, if she tells you things are not right, then it's definitely a reason to hightail it into the hospital. So let's assume none of that happens. She's doing perfect, um, but you put on an O2 sat because you're a very studious uh, paramedic. You're in the truck on the way, and her oxygen saturation starts to decline. 
And so you started out, you were perfect at 99%, and now we've got an oxygen saturation of 92%. In the normal population, maybe that doesn't bother you. In a pregnant woman, it should. You should start thinking, what's going on? And she had a head-on collision, maybe she popped a lung, and she's young and healthy enough that it wasn't really apparent until she started hyperventilating and getting upset. So on this lady, you would throw oxygen on her and get her to the hospital quicker. The reason I bring that up is don't be afraid of oxygen. Oxygen's a great medicine. It calms people down. It helps them feel better. In a pregnant lady, her oxygen carrying capacity is significantly higher than in the non-pregnant state, and she's got another human that needs that oxygen. So if you throw a non-rebreather on her with uh, O2, you may not only calm her down, um, but also increase the O2 available to that pregnancy. So your respiratory rate, you guys all know this if you've looked at pregnancy, but it's going to increase by 15% in the early stages of pregnancy. So don't be terribly surprised if, you, if she has a respiratory weight rate in the 20s or even higher. That would not necessarily be abnormal, but obviously you want to help her if she's hyperventilating because she's stressed, you want to help keep that down. The other issue that we have to worry about with these ladies is if she got into a head-on collision and she had just had McDonald's and she starts puking it up, she is at much higher risk of um, aspiration. And you get a pregnant lady aspirating, and that's another kind of emergency that we don't have time to talk about. But my point is have suction available and ready and do everything you can to try to keep her from puking. Um, my favorite little trick if women say, I think I'm going to throw up, um, you know, besides having them take slow, deep breaths, is to get an alcohol wipe and just put it under their nose and tell them to breathe this slowly. And I always thought it was a weird, creepy old wives' tale, but I've seen it work many times. So just keeping them calm, have them sniff a little alcohol, but just the alcohol wipe will probably do that for you. So we get her to the hospital, and once you get her to the facility, the first thing we're going to do is put uh, the fetal heart rate monitor on because her child is going to tell us if something's wrong. If we put this 32-week baby on the monitor and it looks perfect, then we know at least at this moment she has not lost a significant blood volume somewhere, her heart is functioning properly, she's adequately oxygenated. It can tell us a whole lot about the pregnant lady. On the flip side, her vitals can look completely normal and we put the baby on the monitor and it's in trouble and we know something's gone wrong either she has an abruption like we just talked about or the baby experienced such blunt force trauma that he or she is unable to manage his own heart rate um, and for us that is a medical emergency and I'll there are a few things that I will watch with heart tones for a little bit just to see if we can calm things down and fluid resuscitate but there are some heart tones that when they have hit the trauma bay and we've looked at the monitor, we have immediately gone straight to the operating room and done a C-section. So that's how I want you to think of these patients. You, um, I was talking to a paramedic friend of mine and he's like, I I'm scared to death of pregnant women. I said, me too. And if you ever lose that, you should probably do something else for a living because they are so good at hiding when something's wrong. They look fine um, from a vital stand sign standpoint, but they're, they are the patient that if they tell you something feels wrong, they're almost always correct. It's almost always something is actually wrong. Um, we send out from Wesley this uh, little sheet, and I think they're going to put it in the show notes for you guys on the podcast. It's the evaluation and management of OB trauma patients. But one of the first things I have on there is do not trust the vital signs of a pregnant woman. 
remember her blood volume nearly doubles. If you have never just stopped to think about the amazing anatomy and physiology of pregnancy, do that now. So just think about that. So you sitting there probably have a blood volume of around two liters, um, unless you're like the Hulk, then maybe four. But by the end of a pregnancy, that will be four liters or even more, which is amazing from the standpoint of that, you know, that has provided the nutrients and oxygen needed to grow a human. But it's also quite helpful at the end of pregnancy because after delivery, there is always blood loss. And it's almost like the system has compensated for that blood loss that will happen at the end of pregnancy. The other thing that's on here is do not restrict the pregnant woman. And what I mean by that is I've certainly read a lot of the, the literature on trauma and fluid restriction, especially with head injuries and things like that. But pregnant women, you really need to keep them fluid up. So if you suspect at all that she has lost blood, and frankly, if you're in the field and she's going to the hospital, start an IV anyway and just start fluids. You're not going to hurt her with a liter of LR or normal saline. That That's totally fine. And if you get to the hospital and she's up a fluid, don't worry. Her kidneys will pee that out like nobody's business because her glomerular filtration rate is going to be way higher. So fluid resuscitation is good for mom. But what about TXA with a patient exhibiting shock symptoms or meeting that protocol give it absolutely we use txa frequently as a preventive for patients who are at risk for hemorrhage with c-section but i've also used it during pregnancy in very preterm patients when we were just trying to give the baby more time so there's no no randomized controlled trials on babies that have been in the moms of that have gotten TXA, but there's certainly no adverse data. And we're using it so much these days that it really doesn't concern us to give TXA. So oxygen, fluid, and you've also talked to us about how safe TXA is for mom and baby. Are there any other priorities we should have in mind in the pre-hospital setting or in the rural hospital setting before sending this patient to you? So pre-hospital treatment of the pregnant woman it's oxygen, it's fluid, and it's get to the hospital. Um, a number of years ago, a transport service that will remain unnamed approached me and said, we want to give our paramedics Dopplers, and we want them to start Dopplering in the field. And I said, absolutely not. That does nothing for you. Let's say you Doppler in the field and you can't find heart tones and you think the baby's demised. All that's going to do is waste time because even if the baby's demised, it needs to be out of this mother so that we can resuscitate her properly. On the flip side, all you've done for that mom now is cause more tachycardia, more hyperventilation, and none of that does anything good for her vital signs. So the only situation that I would recommend pre-hospital monitoring is when you have a scalpel and you're ready to take the baby out if something's not okay. And I don't know too many trucks that that's a great idea. I don't know too many fixed wings that there's even room to do a C-section, and I would not want to clean that up later. So I would highly recommend just the vitals, just oxygen, just fluids, and getting where you need to go. Then the immediate triage at a facility, let's say we have a facility in Beloit where they don't have a level one trauma system, they don't have a level one trauma bay, they don't have a NICU, maybe they don't even have enough blood products if something terribly goes wrong, depending on where they're at in the week. Um, their number one goal would just be if the baby appears stable, just get them out of there. If you're worried at all after a major MVC in the middle of, uh, Beloit, Kansas, and you're just 
you think it's probably okay, but you're not positive, we're always happy to take those ladies. And if they've had a major collision, we monitor for four hours initially. If there is any sign of uterine activity or any sign at all of fetal uh, distress, even if it's minor, she'll be monitored for 24 hours on our unit until we decide it's okay. And the reason is there have been lots of retrospective studies that have shown that women in the first four hours who have any kind of uterine activity or any kind of fetal distress are much more likely to have an abruption that's concealed that will reveal itself over the next 24 hours. So that 24-hour mark is really the magic hour that we feel comfortable. If nothing's happened by that point, she hasn't bled, the heart tones have looked good, the sono's okay, we feel pretty comfortable letting her go at that point. So we've talked about the pre-hospital setting, but what about our rural hospital providers? What should their priorities be after the pre-hospital treatment with the oxygen, fluid, and TXA? What considerations do they need to be thinking about? Um, it would depend on if they're more concerned about long-term stability of the mother or that something actually happened to the uterus or the uteral the fetoplacental unit. Um, but let's assume that they're concerned about a concealed abruption. I would get give fluids, um, make sure she's stable, meaning mom's vitals are stable. I would give TXA, and then I would call the receiving institution, and that's it. I would just get her out of there as soon as I could. Um, if the baby is showing signs of distress and it is viable, greater than 26 weeks, then a lot of times we recommend those facilities deliver and we send our unit to them. And we now have a unit that gets sent out by the NICU with a nurse to help with the patient, and then we bring them all here. Uh, I have had calls where there's been a trauma and an immediate cesarean at the outlying facility. They've gotten to a place of mom is fairly stable um, and we're concerned about what to do next. And I will say for the surgeon in the middle of nowhere who is trying to decide what to do, the best thing is to pack and ship. So don't close the abdomen. Just get her to the point of she's hemostatically, hemodynamically stable and leave her abdomen open. And when she gets here, I can put on a wound vac. I can watch her really carefully and just make sure that she doesn't end up with compartment syndrome or something before we close her. And we'll sometimes do that here. If they've been in a major um, motor vehicle collision and the ba especially if the baby was early enough that that fascia hasn't really been stretched enough, sometimes we will put on a wound vac, watch for a few days, and then close them later. So at the beginning of the scenario described a high-speed collision. Are there any other mechanisms of injury that we should be worried about um, that normally maybe we don't give the same emphasis to nowadays? Sure. So um, back in the day when I was a medical student, we did this huge retrospective study of level two traumas. And my resident at the time just wanted to get the rollover off the level two trauma risk or off the level two trauma list because these rollovers would come in. There's nothing wrong with them. It seemed like a complete waste of time and resource. And they, in fact, were successful at doing that. But what we have seen is pregnant women in a rollover are a whole different animal, and they are exceedingly concerning. And again, if you think about this uterus is attached to this woman inside her body by obviously the vagina and a few ligaments, but that's it. There's nothing else really attaching the uterus. So as she rolls over, that uterus is getting banged against the anterior abdominal wall and then back against the spine, and then again, depending on how many times they roll over. So those ladies, we watch very carefully if they're sent here to Wesley. 
and typically they are monitored overnight uh, for 24 hours. The same thing with the high risk, uh, or sorry, the high speed collisions, especially if they have seat mark, seat belt marks on their abdomen. And then anytime you have any kind of accident where the passenger, another passenger in the vehicle demises, if there's enough energy in that collision to cause demise of anyone else in the vehicle, there's enough energy in that collision to cause uh, morbidity or mortality to the fetus. Um, and then if there's another passenger that just has ejection, you know, if somebody else was thrown from the vehicle, but she had her seatbelt, so she remained in the vehicle, you have to assume that something is wrong with her until you prove otherwise. Yeah, I think those are all excellent points as far as the mechanism of injury. I know as a medic in the past, I've been hesitant to sometimes fly a pregnant patient or to transport a pregnant patient just because they're showing not showing any signs of injury, but based on the mechanism, we went ahead and made that decision to transport, and certainly glad I have made that decision. I think those are excellent points for anybody that's out in the field. Absolutely. You don't trust the pregnant women. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was out, um, I did rural health care in Anthony, Kansas, which is about 60 minutes from Wichita. And there were many pregnant women that would come in that I would think, man, if I was in Wichita, I would probably just send them home, but I don't have sono. I can't monitor heart tones. It's just a different situation. And I have never had a doc from a rural place call me. And I have never thought to myself, why don't they just do this there? Never. Because I've been in that situation and, and you may be the most capable surgeon physician there is, but if you don't have the resources to take care of the patient, then the patient's not in the right place in the right time. Absolutely. It's often so much better to err on the err on the side of caution. Sure. Rather than having regrets later on. So excellent points. Anything else you'd like to share with us, Dr. Haig? So one other role I have is I am the chair of the Maternal Mortality Review Committee for the state of Kansas, and that has given me a really unique view of why women in the pregnancy and peripartum period are dying and what's happening to ladies that are in that time period. And I went into it thinking, I bet they're dying of blood pressure disorders, or I bet they're dying of postpartum hemorrhage. But really what we found is it had much more to do with social social situations, suicide, homicide. Um, there were some drug overdoses, MVCs, and there were a few medical issues. But by and large, these are women that are in unsafe situations, and pregnancy makes that even more unsafe. So I guess the other thing I would mention is if you are called to the scene of domestic violence, just realize that that patient's risk of death in the next 30 days is very high, whether it's from homicide um, or injury to her or to the baby, the risk of death to the baby is very high. And just take a minute to be a human and say to this lady, I'm really concerned about you. We have resources in our community. I would be happy to refer you to those. Please don't stay in a situation that is unsafe. And you never know the impact you will make on somebody if you just stop and be a human for a minute and say, I'm concerned about you. What can we do to help you? Because it's clear that you're not in a safe situation. So that's the plug I would put for that. And that data is available on the KDHE website. We've published our first couple years of data. So if you were ever interested in what are pregnant women and peripartum women dying of in our state, we have now reviewed, I believe, 2017, 2018, and 2019 are done. Um, 2019, we may have a few more cases left. But it's just a group of volunteer physicians, social workers, um, people in the community that we get together 
three or four times a year and review cases and really try to do a deep dive into what could we have done? Could we have prevented this death? And it's amazing how many times it's a social situation and how many times EMS or PD or someone else was involved in the situation within the previous month or two months before it led to that woman's demise. So just stop and think and do the best you can to be another human. Be nice. I like it. Dr. Haig, thank you for taking time to uh, be on Trauma Talk with us today. I hope you'll come back. If you have any questions for me or Dr. Haig, you can email me at A-A-R-O-N-S-U-T-T-O-N at WesleyMC.com. That's Aaron.Sutton at WesleyMC.com. Hope you'll leave a review, a like, and subscribe to our podcast. And if you have any other ideas or requests for upcoming episodes, please email me. Thank you.